it went straight down the middle. Then it started to hook. So a couple of wins in 91, and then you skipped to 94, where you picked up another four wins. So uh, what was going on between 91 and 94? Anything special? Well, I think... Driving and putting. <laughs> no, I think what happened... Um, what happened there is that after 91, you know, um, 89, 90, 91, I got so much attention and I never liked getting that much attention. So it's kind of like, okay, I don't want this much attention. So, you know, then you just don't play quite as well. Don't and you concentrate don't get the as much. Really. And then it's like, so it was like the cycle of, I'm not getting enough attention. I I want to play better. I'd play better. Then it was too much attention. Then I'd not play well. And I think that was more of the cycle for me there. Had to be a lot of demand on your time back then. A lot. And as a, as you know, as you're younger, more difficult to say no, isn't it? Yeah, it was. Um, actually, I. Someone gave me a book when I was younger because I didn't say no to anything. And then they gave me a book. It says, when I say no, I feel, when I say no, I feel guilty, I think is the name of the book. And it changed my life huh. because it was basically, it's okay to say no. And you yeah. don't have to give a reason why to say no. It's okay. And the LPGA in those days needed the top players to promote it. And in 91, after I won that many times in 90, I had to go back to all of those events that I won and do media days, along right. with my sponsor days that I was giving. Yeah. So, you know, I probably had 20 days out of the year that I had to, I was giving back to, the tournament and right. their charities. And, you know, it's important that you do that, but those are days that you don't get off. That's uh, right. So it gets, yeah. it gets pretty tiring. And, and, you know, we talked to the LPGA a lot about, you know, don't tire out your top players because if you don't have to, because then they're not going to play as well. And yeah. 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 Bruce, we had the same conversations you'll recall with Bill Rogers. Bill, back in exactly. his hot year of 1981, won seven times, including the Open Championship at uh, at Royal St. George's, and and he was winning all over the world. So that next yes, year, he was. he's going everywhere. He's going yeah. everywhere. Yeah. And at yeah. age 28, he said, "I couldn't say no when I was that young." And uh, in in you know, in terms of his personal story, uh, you know, he burned out. Yeah, and you can't you can because it's not why you get in the game. You don't get in the game to do media days and things like that, but that's all part of it. I mean, you know, you look at Tiger Woods and Rory and and guys like that. They're doing media every single day, no matter how they play. And they're getting asked to do other things. And you have Correct. to say no for your own sake. Yep, yep. So four wins in 94, another uh, solid year, You, uh, uh, you know, including that playoff with Laura Davies, I think is probably the one she was talking about uh, 
at the yeah. JL Big Apple in, in 1994. You won yeah. your third world championship that year as well, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. I I liked the world championship. It was always one of my favorite tournaments, but it was, um, I think, because it was so few players, but they were the top players, you know, of that year. You were so, I was always so motivated to go in there and play well and prove mm-hmm. that, you know, I was indeed one of the top players. Yeah. Yeah. You picked up a win in 95 over Colleen Walker and uh, Meg Mallon at the Welch's championship. Was Meg Mallon any good? Good, good play. Good, solid player. Yeah. <laughs> she she yeah, sure was. Yeah, I'm here's, sure. Here's what she drove the ball extremely straight. Like, I mean, she drove it on a string. She hit a lot of greens in regulation and she was, she would tell you she was a streaky putter, but man, I, I mean, she was good. She was a good putter, good short game. So, you know, just always kept the ball in place. She was always in it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I'm sure we'll get her chance, our chance with her at some point to, uh, to tell her story as well. She said she wants, she wants to do it. She wants to good. do the podcast. Good. So. Good. Good. Yeah. Good. Good. Yeah. So, uh, kind of an eight year stretch between wins, 1995, then you go to the BMO in, in 2003. So what's going on at that point in your career? Well, the, the yips came back at that point and, and that was almost, it almost retired me even earlier. Um, mm-hmm. and, um, I, you know, I worked hard on it and kind of overcame that. And I think also, you know, just the fact that it's funny because Mike McGettrick always told me, he goes, you know, when you hit 45, you, you know, you lose your fast twitch muscle, you start losing your fast twitch muscles and, you know, everything's slower in your swing because I started to lose distance, things like that. And I'm like, I'm like, Mike, you're crazy. You're crazy. (laughs) I can work out and I can do this and whatever. And, uh, yeah, I think it was just kind of an adjustment. And I think as you get older, too, you it's hard to focus for four days in a row. Um, You know, so you have days where you really lose your focus. Um, it, it's, you know, it was, it was not a fun time to try and play the tour, but I wasn't ready to quit either. Um, yeah. And I had a lot of good, like top 20 finishes, but I went from top five and top 10 finishes to like top 20, top 20. finishes. Yeah. And so, you know, I kind of like, and then I'm you know, like, all right, I gotta, you know, I gotta end well. And, I, I just kind of, um, in 2007, I was, we were playing the British over at uh, St. Andrews, which I just loved. I played seven days that week. I flew in. I, well, I, I walked it the Sunday before, and then I played Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And then, because I just, I love the golf course. I mean, it, and um, it's St. Andrews. And, and on the weekend, I, I said, you know what? I'm ready to I'm ready to stop. I played I'm at St Andrews. I'm going to stop. And I didn't tell anyone, but the problem I did, I told one person. I told Meg Mallon and she told Louise Suggs. And <laughs> then I think Meg told Judy Rankin who was commentating. 
So then the word got out on Sunday and all these people were standing around the 18th green. And I'm like, and a camera showed up as I, as I'm going across the bridge. the bridge. Oh yeah. And yeah. I'm like, all right, oh, yeah. they all know this is crazy. So, <laughs> yeah. but I, you know, I decided that was my last tournament and I never looked back. I mean, it was just, it, I had talked to a lot. It was the time. It was the time. And I had talked to players yeah. and they said, you know, I talked to tennis players and, golfers and they said you just know you'll know and i i did so that was my last tournament and uh, yeah and it was fine what a way to wrap up a career at the old course at st andrews yeah, yeah. how about that yeah. huh? it was great so uh, uh just briefly mention the playoff record which is as every player we've talked to will tell you once you get to a playoff it's a crapshoot it's just yeah. it's it's more a roll of a dice, you know. Mm-hmm. So you had some uh, had a five and six record, which is pretty credible, uh, and uh, um, you know, so you had six others that uh, woulda, shoulda, coulda, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I didn't exactly but, have a winning record for for someone who was considered to be a good match player. I didn't have a good winning record in uh, in playoffs, but. Yeah, I agree. I think it is it, it is a crapshoot and I think a lot of it depends upon what hole they pick to you know, the holes they pick to play. Like I always hate seeing a playoff where they play the same hole over and over and over again because I feel like there's a possibility that one player might have you know like that better than like the that other hole. one. It might suit yeah. their eye better. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so I don't like that. I like switching up the holes but um yeah and that's T- tv controls it tv controls it <laughs> <laughs> sure do well, yeah. i'll tell you what beth i think we've interviewed now 21 hall of famers if you laid out their entire playoff record for those 21 players i'm not sure it's a winning record really yeah, yeah. no it's amazing really it is yeah that's surprising there's one there's one lady player who who really who really uh I don't know. The first person we talked to was Kathy Whitworth, yeah, right? Yeah. And and do you realize how many times she finished second? Isn't it in the nineties? It is. It's ninety five times. Wow! And that's it's a fascinating. And she won eighty eight times and finished second ninety five times. Yeah, I mean Kathy Correct. Whitworth's just an incredible talent. Yeah. But no, I think Mike's right. I think if we looked at everybody, we'd, we, they'd be it'd be hard to find a winning record overall for all the great players. God. Yeah, that that surprises me. That really surprises but, me. Let's just uh, spin through the majors uh, briefly. Of course, we talked about your win uh, at the LPGA in uh, in 1990. But uh, starting with uh, what was the Chevron, the ANA Inspiration, the Kraft Nabisco, the Dinosaur. I mean, it's had a lot of names, but that mm-hmm. particular tournament at, at Mission Hills, which has been a major since 83, you only missed one cut there <laughs> at three top fives and eight top tens. But not miss, only missing one cut is good because – in the latter years, um, we did have – well, we always had a cut, but it was a small field. So in the early days, it was kind of hard to miss the cut. You had to play pretty poorly to miss the cut there. You could, but um, – and then as it went on, the field got bigger. And so then it was 
easier to miss the cut. Um, and that's pretty good because I always felt like that was a tough golf course. For me. It mm-hmm. just didn't, um, there were a lot of holes there that didn't set up to my eye. So I always kind of fought with it a little bit from a, a, a you know, a golf course standpoint, but, um, but it was a good solid golf course. You had to, you had to play well to play well there. You had to, you had to drive it well. You had to think well. Um, and you definitely had to keep your iron shots on the proper side of the hole to play well there. Yeah. Bruce, uh, a little bit like the masters on the men's side in that it's uh, the course that repeats every year and as we've learned from talking to a lot of great players, uh, a lot of times Augusta National didn't necessarily suit their golf game either. Yeah, yeah. like uh, one Lee Trevino. Yeah, he never li- he never liked it. <laughs> no, he never liked it. I'll tell you what, though, as good a player as he was, I you know I can't understand why he couldn't win there too. Because what a great player. Yeah, he he was. And then you know now you see some faders that that win there. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, it, I mean, I guess, you know, really you can win anywhere if you put your mind to it, but I, you know, I think he just had an attitude about Augusta national Correct. that it doesn't suit my eye. And I, and I get that. I mean, they're, you know, they're definitely horses for courses and, yeah. um, you know, you run into that in, in a career. Hear that? That's the sound of a walk-off albatross, a two on a par five to win a two-day golf tournament. That shot happened to me. One in 600 million odds. Since then, people call me Albie. Now, I've told this story so often, my friends can't take it. I'm pretty sure my wife, next time I tell her, she's going to leave me. So I decided to start a podcast to tell the entire world about it because it deserves it. It's the craziest shot you've never heard of. And guess what? There's tons more stories like this all around golf. And that's what our podcast is all about. Join me and my fellow degenerates, Panda and Shepard as we dive into them. Insane bets, crazy what-if scenarios, and all the you-had-to-be-there type moments in golf. Find us wherever you get your podcast. Did I tell you about Malbatross? If you look at the U.S. Open, uh, you had a couple of seconds there. One of them was uh, real close to where I was living at the time, back in 1981. You were at LaGrange Country Club, and uh, you had a nice little wedge shot to have the... (laughs) Get into a playoff, I guess, huh? Well, I birdied the last two holes of that open and still lost by one. Um, Pat Bradley and I had quite a battle that day. We both shot in the sixties, and um, it—I mean that—that that one hurt. That hurt for years. I, I'll say, out of all my losses, that one hurt the worst. And Pat and I have actually talked about it. Um, Hmm. and I, I came out of that and I thought on Sunday, I thought I played my best golf and I lost. So my conclusion in my mind was therefore I'm not the best. It was a, it was a very immature conclusion and it, it actually set me back for a little bit. Um, but I would say that that loss stuck with me for probably five or six years before I could work my way through it. Um, I just wanted Hmm. it. I wanted to win an open so badly. 
that I think I basically stopped myself from ever having a chance because I wanted to win one so badly. Yeah. Well, what you told yourself uh, is exactly what Jack Nicholas told Tom Watson walking off the 18th green in 1977 at Turnberry. <laughs> he told Tom, I played my best golf. Yeah. And you beat me. You yeah. beat him. Yeah. Yeah. It, it just, yeah. It was, uh, that was, that was a tough one. But I look back at it now and I, I think, gosh, I played so well under pressure that I'm actually proud of how I played, but it, it's taken me this long to kind of get through that. Yeah. So how did you carry that experience to the next open? Because you got right back up on the horse and we're right there again in 82. Yeah. Um, is 80, 82 was Del Paso. It was. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 82. Uh, <laughs> well. Leading after 54 there too. Yeah. I was leading after 54 and on the, is it that was it the eighth green? Um, I marked marked my ball, put it back down, and went to line up a putt. And the greens by Sunday were very flaky and crusty. And I came back, and the ball had shifted. And I called a penalty on myself. And I think it was the eighth hole. I'm not positive about that, but even the the USGA official in the group is like, are you positive? And I said, I always put the ball down the same way with the logo facing the same way. And the logo has moved like a quarter of a roll. And mm. so I, I called a penalty on myself and then was a little bit rattled after that, didn't play as well, and I finished second. Um, so that's another one that got away from me that I felt like, you know, I should have, I felt like I should have won that. So I had two years in a row in the opens that were very disappointing finishes. And, uh, yeah, that one kind of, that one stuck with me for a little while too. Yeah, the, the the British Open uh, didn't come on stream as a major uh, until two thousand and one. So that was really deep into your career. You still yeah. played in a few. Uh, uh, you've played a lot of golf in the UK. What are some of your favorite venues over there? Um, well, the ones that we played the Open on at the time, uh, we didn't play. I mean, we played Royal Lytham St Anne's, um, Sunningdale. I had played Sunningdale quite a few times. Um, I just recently went over for Solheim Cup and I played some golf before and I played Muirfield for the first time and just loved it. So I think now my new favorite is Muirfield where they played this year. It's just Mm -hmm. right in front of you. Good golf. Um, Mm -hmm. Nothing tricky about it. Um, And I also love Turnberry over there. And I did play, I played a British over there at Turnberry. Yeah, and it is fabulous since they did the changes there too. Yeah, yeah, and then of course St Andrews. I I'm one of the ones that loves St Andrews just for its oddities. <laughs> I like it too. <laughs> and it kind I of like it too. It kind of grows on you too, doesn't it? It does. It I does. think the more you yeah. play it, 
the more it grows on you. And the first time I played it, my mom and I went over to, I played the British amateur because I was a U.S. amateur champion. I wanted to try and win the British amateur. I lost in the semifinals. But my mom went over and, and my mom and I went played St. Andrews afterwards. And that was a special time that, you know, I got to play it with my mom. Yep. Yeah. yeah. I guess. Uh, well, let's talk a little bit about the Solheim Cup then, Beth, because uh, as a player, you were there eight times. You got to play in the first one. Mm-hmm. That was in 1990 at Lake Nona with a couple of terrific captains. We've talked about Kathy Whitworth, but also Mickey Walker from England. Yeah, Mickey Walker was captain for the, the European team for quite a while. Um, yeah, you know, that first one was kind of more like an exhibition. Uh you know, we didn't have a lot of fans. It was mostly family and some other people that really knew the LPGA. Uh, Lake Nona was a great venue. Uh, Betsy King was my partner. Kathy Wivers like, okay, Beth, you and Betsy are going to play. And we were undefeated. Um, <laughs> and um, Allison Nicholas said, we played Allison Nicholas and Laura Davies and we beat them. And Allison Nicholas was quoted as saying that it was like playing God and God. Because you figure in, <laughs> in 1990, I had a great year and so did Betsy King. Um, yeah. And, you know, that it was kind of the Americans were, we were so confident. And the Europeans came over not quite knowing what they were getting into, I think. Um, yeah. But after that Solheim Cup, a lot of Europeans wanted to come over and play in the United States, play the LPGA after that. So that Mm -hmm. kind of brought a lot of them over. And then, you know, the next one in 92 was over at Dalmahoy. And Kathy Whitworth again was the captain, but her mother passed away once she got over there and she had to leave. And that threw us into a bit of a, you know, an upheaval on our team. And um, Alice Miller took over because she was president of the LPGA and she took over for Kathy. But there was a lot of um, arguing within the team as to who should play next and who should sit. And it didn't fare well with our team. We lost that one, which I think ended up being very good for the Solheim Cup that we lost that one. Yep, yep. Um, because then you, then you went on to win the next three, and then it, then you started alternating, and the home yeah. team won for a few yeah. years. Uh, um, of all of them, other than your first one, uh, what, what what's the one or two that really stand out for you, either from a competitive standpoint or just a personal experience standpoint? Well, I think um, you know the one that's popping up in my head right now is Crooked Stick, where Nancy Lopez picked me. Um, you know, older player, but she picked me to. Um, you know, as a captain's pick. And so that one was really special to me. And then in the first morning, I was actually supposed to sit. And uh, Julie Inkster and Paula Creamer, who was a rookie for Solheim Cup at the time, were supposed to play together. And on Wednesday or Thursday afternoon, um, I was on the range and Nancy Lopez and Donna Capone was her assistant, came up and they said, how do you feel about playing with Paula tomorrow morning? Julie's got an ingrown fingernail, and they've had to take her nail off. She's not going to be able to play in the morning. 
And I said, all right. And they said, well, Paula wants to play a few holes with you because it was alternate shot too. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that right, I had to step right. in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, so I stepped in and played with, you know, the rookie. And we ended up having that match. Um, but I felt like, you know, for stepping in at the last minute, I I did pretty well and and, you know, introduced – Paula to Solheim Cup. Yeah. Yeah. That was kind of well, fun. A, a great record across those eight times. And then you were honored to be named captain for the, and I'll remember this one again. It's a, a club I know up in Chicago where I lived for a long time, but uh, 2009 victory at Rich Harvest Farms. Yeah. Rich mm. Harvest Farms was, it, it was really cool to be the captain. Um, you know, I had, um, I had, Michelle Wee was on that team. She was a captain's pick. So my two captain's picks were Michelle Wee and Julie Inkster. <coughs> and um, really went out on a limb there, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I went veteran and rookie. And Michelle Wee played great for me there, um, but she's just so good at match play and so intimidating. And well, you know, the second hole there, the par five. I think she eagled it like two of the four matches. Mm. Yeah. Um, and it's not an easy hole, but no. she no. played really, really well. And, um, just the whole dynamic of learning what goes behind the scenes from a captain standpoint, as far as, you know, designing the clothing, designing the golf bags, head covers, all of that, you do it all. And I just, I just loved it. I just embraced it. and. Dealing with the players gave me a chance to kind of do what, it, you know, I, my major in college was coaching and administration. I got to, I got to do yeah, both of those to do as it. a captain. <laughs> and, um, but the captain's picks were by far the hardest because there were, um, you know, players that just weren't playing well going into it. The two players that, were 11 and 12 on the list that I didn't pick, I thought were going to be really hard to tell them. And they're both like, we're not playing well. I don't blame you. And I'm like, they just made my job so much easier. But then, a lot easier, but then yeah. you know, some of them were tougher. And, you know, as far as Michelle Wee goes, you know, a lot of people were saying you can't pick her because her parents are overbearing and that sort of thing. So what I did is I I took Michelle's parents aside and I just said, I want to explain this to you. I want to pick your daughter, but these are the things that I need you to do to make life easier for me and the team and everybody. Her parents were fabulous. They did everything I asked them to do. Um, they never got in the way. And I said to I said, I know you trust me with Michelle because I was friends with Michelle. I was kind of, you know, had met her when she was young and had known her all that time. And I said, you have to trust me that I'm going to take care of your daughter. And they said, okay. And they let me have her for, you know, the week of the Solheim and actually before. And I'm so grateful to them for being that way. 
and Michelle played great. Yeah. Yeah. It was a very memorable Solheim Cup. So Beth Daniel, outstanding career. I mean, we didn't uh, highlight some of these statistics at the top, but uh, um, Bruce had mentioned 41 professional wins, including 33 on the LPGA Tour. That's 15th on the all-time list, by the way, for our listeners. And uh, we'll see where that is in 50 years. Hopefully it's still 15th on the list. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. But uh, uh, she was the Rookie of the Year in 1979, Tour Money Winner. Leader in 80, 81, 90. Player of the Year in 1980, 1990, 1994. The Ver Trophy winner in 89, 90, and 94. So quite a record of accomplishments on the LPGA Tour and across professional golf. And, you know, since retirement, uh, uh, she's been honored uh, quite a bit. I guess uh, probably the capstone of the career being... uh, uh, inducted into the World Golf Hall of Fame and the LPJ Hall of Fame in 2000. That had to Thousand. make you feel quite proud. Yeah, that was uh, that was pretty special. I remember when I I um, you know got the call about World Golf Hall of Fame and and the LPJ Hall of Fame, and it was it you know it it's it's a nice feather in your cap, I guess. Um, sure is is the way to say it. It's uh, and World Golf Hall of Fame has really done a good job of kind of making us feel like we're a family. And so when mm-hmm. we have the gatherings for the inductions, it's always fun to see everybody and talk to them and catch up on our lives. Yeah. And yeah, it's a, it's a nice yeah. gathering there. Yeah. And uh, uh, one you're probably uh, proud of as well, the Beth Daniel Award uh, honors the best junior female golfer in South Carolina. Yeah, that one's kind of fun. I, I, uh, Jay Haas does the men's side and I do the women's side. Oh, great. And, um, you know, South Carolina Golf Association has done a great job of, of bringing up, um, these young kids. And it's fun to watch their careers. And I've had some, um, award winners go on and play the tour. Like Austin Ernst is currently on tour. She's a past winner. Um, Christy McPherson, who played on my Solheim Cup team, it's kind of kind of neat to have a South Carolina native on my Solheim Cup team when I was captain. So mm-hmm. uh, yeah, so I've had some had some good players win the Player of the Year award and go on to do some really good things. Yeah, yeah. One person, Bruce, and I want to give a shout out to is Hart Brown, <laughs> uh, Hart, longtime pro at uh, Country Club of Charleston as well, and. And as you're getting to know, we do some deep research on our subjects, Beth. So uh, uh, confidentially, he gave us some good stuff, didn't he, Bruce? Oh, I bet he did. I bet <laughs> yes, he did. he did. Hart and I used to spend a lot of time together. Um, when I was in college and I'd come back home, Hart was playing a lot of golf at the time, and he's a good, good player. Um, and, you know, we'd go out and play golf. And... Um, I just saw him at my junior tournament two weeks ago. You know, he retired from the country club at Charleston and Matt took over for him. And I just texted him and I said, boy, we're missing you out here. And so he came (laughs) out one day and he makes me, he makes me laugh. He, um, (laughs) he's getting back into play. He's playing a lot of, he's hitting balls every day and he wants to start playing in some things. So I'm excited for him that, He's now getting back into playing golf. Yeah. Well, tell our listeners about what you just alluded to, the Beth Daniel Junior Azalea Tournament at Country Club of Charleston. 
Yeah, so yeah. Um, let's see. I think um, the heart and heart called me and he said, you know, we've had this. It started as the Al Esposito, which I played in, and then became the Junior Azalea because Country Club of Charleston every year has the Azalea Tournament, which is the top amateur men players in the country. They come and play. And back in the day, they would play, the amateurs would play at the Country Club of Charleston and then go on and play in the, in the Masters. Um, so it's got really good roots. And so what we're trying to do is grow the Junior Azalea into the same type of tournament as the Azalea. So it's an invitational. It's based on junior rankings, and it's uh, boys and girls. And um, it's um, so Hart called me, and he said, boy, I'm having a hard time with the, the, um, the junior Azalea. I'm having a hard time keeping it going. Would you be interested in coming on board and helping? And I said, absolutely. And he said, I'm also thinking about talking to South Carolina Golf Association about having them come in and run it. So the three of us all got on a phone call and we decided to give it a try. And it was a big hit. So um, it, you know, we're going on, I think it's fifth, this was the 15th year of it. And I, I fly into Charleston for the week of the tournament. We do a sponsor day on the Monday morning and then the kids play their, their um, practice round in the afternoon. But in the morning we do two sponsors uh, and two of the kids playing in the tournament and the sponsors just love it. They love playing love with these it. kids yeah. and we raise money just for junior golf. So we raise the money to keep the cost down for the tournament, but we also um, give away money to South Carolina Golf Association, First Tee, USGA, LPGA, Junior Girls Program, and the Junior Program at the Country Club of Charleston. All the money that we raise goes into to the, that. Yeah, that's and, terrific. Um, so it's become, you know, it's become pretty popular, and it's popular with the kids and. We're starting to get kids from from out of state, like Nick Gross from Pennsylvania, won last year, um, and this year we had two North Carolina kids winning. So I told the South Carolina kids, "I'm like, you better get going. Better North Carolina kids your game. are passing you." So it's fun, <laughs> and I get to watch their I get to watch their careers. I get to watch them move on and. Um, it's it's one of the most gratifying things that I've done in golf. Yeah, that's neat. So, Beth, seeing as you have listened to some of our podcasts, <laughs> you you got to know what's coming now, right? <laughs> we get to ask we get to ask our guests three questions. Okay. Right, Mike. That's right. You can okay. start. Go ahead. So, the first question that I would ask you is, um, if you knew now what you knew when you I mean if you knew now what would you do if you knew today when you started I mean I'm not I'm messing that's this right up. I'll let it all this out go ahead and start again yeah saying, if, 
Yeah, go ahead, Bruce. Try it. Try, yeah. try it again. If you wisdom. try it again, let me try it again. <laughs> you do it. Age twenty. What would I that? have done differently? Yeah. What would right. I have done differently? Um, you know. We finished that off. We'll let him. We'll let him do that again. Let's let him do that again. Go ahead, Bruce. <laughs> I'm not going to do it again. Yeah, I'll saying. ask it. You can ask the next question. How's that? Oh, all right. Okay, That's so, good. Um, well, so, so I Beth, think if, if Beth, so Beth, if if you knew at age twenty what you knew today, what, what you would know you, now, what would you have done differently? <laughs> well, I think number one, I probably would have not played quite as much. I would have given my body more time to rest between tournaments, um, and I. Boy, I mean, that's kind of a loaded question, but um, just mm. in general, I think that that, and I think I would have said, I probably would have said no more often to things, especially things that were outside of golf. Because I think what you have to do, looking back on my careers, you have to decide, you know, what what's the mark that I want to leave in golf? What is, you know, do I want to, you know, be a good player? do I want to do this? Do I want to do that? And I, I think, you know, you have to kind of look at it that way. And I think I would have practiced my short game more instead of focusing hmm. so much on my long game, I would have practiced my short game more. Okay, good. Good answer. So Beth, we're going to give you one career mulligan. Where do you take it? A career mulligan. Um, well, I think at the eighty the eighty two open, I'd take my mulligan for the ball that moved and not have the ball move. I think that wouldn't happen that today. open would have been a different uh, outcome. So that's the first time we've ever heard something about a non shot. It was really yeah. more of a <laughs> I want to replace the ball better. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I would just not well, have the ball well, move on me. Yeah. That'd be my yeah. career mulligan. Um, I, I would actually like people to remember me as, um, you know, someone that played good golf, someone that cared about the game and the history of the game and someone that, you know, that cares about people, which I do. And I didn't always exhibit that when I was competing, but I do, I do care about people. And I think the thing about me is that I'm, I was totally opposite competing than I am off the golf course. I'm a totally opposite person. So when people meet me now, they can't believe that I was the way I was when I played golf. Um, but it's what I had to do to compete. But I would like people to think that I'm a, I care about other people and I'm, I'm a caring, caring person. Beth Daniel, World Golf Hall of Famer. Bruce, it's really been a pleasure. It has, Beth. We we thank you so much. We've looked forward to this. We I know we had you scheduled uh, quite a bit earlier than this, and we've been waiting to get over certain things, but it's been a joy having you with us today. You've been a wonderful player, and uh, we thank you for your time. Well, Bruce and Mike, thank you for having me, and you guys do a great job with this, and I'm looking forward to listening to more podcasts. 
Thank you for listening to another episode of For the Good of the Game. And please, wherever you listen to your podcast on Apple and Spotify, if you like what you hear, please subscribe, spread the word, and tell your friends. Until we tee it up again, for the good of the game, so long, everybody. Whack down the fairway. It went smack down the fairway. Then it started to slice just a smidge off line. It headed for two, but it bounced off nine. My caddy says, long as you're still in the state, you're okay. Yes, it went straight down the middle, quite a way.